Welcome to the Hoban Minute, a podcast that will shift your perspective on the business, politics, and culture of the hemp and marijuana industries. I'm your host, Xavier Jaillet. It's 420 somewhere, so let's dive in. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Hoban Minute. I'm your host, Xavier Jaillet, and I am joined, as I always am, by my colleague and good friend, Bob Hoban. Hey now, it's good to be here. How looking are you doing today, Bob? I'm doing great. Today is uh, going to be a great episode of the Hope and Minute. Looking forward to talking with our guest. It is, yes. And our guest is uh, an impressive one. Happy to introduce Adam Bierman, one of the co-founders of MedMen, um, to the podcast today. How are you today, Adam? Hey guys, thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here. Now, it's a true pleasure to have you on. Um, and we're excited to cover um, some things in the past, some things in the future, you know, kind of how the industry can maybe learn um, from your experience and then the things that you've done in this space um, and and avoid maybe some of the pitfalls um, that you and MedMen did go through um, in the last five years. Now, I wanted to start with kind of that story. You know, I think there's a conception out there um, that MedMen is this corporate cannabis that came in and kind of, you know, sparked, let's say, the suits versus the legacy operators dialogue and, you know, I've been doing a little reading today on you, Adam, and I know that you are a cannabis activist at heart. Um, and so maybe you can start by telling us, you know, where the story of MedMen comes from and why, at the end of the day, you know, MedMen did end up with this rap of having, of being a corporate cannabis, kind of the evil mainstream, you know, non-cannabis, let's say, activist-focused company. Um, but I know that's not to be true. And so maybe you can shed some light on that and your story generally. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I, my, my first reaction to that is somebody had to be that, you know, I, I, I look at that whole experience and that point in time in my life and in history where, you know, we were, I was the tip of the spear in this movement, right? This movement was going on for decades. Um, and the, my time at the tip of the spear was second. But, you know, I, I, I did the best I could while I was, you know, in that role. And, you know, that role will continue to and through um, the end of prohibition. Um, but, you know, looking back on it, it's like somebody had to, right, had to cross over. Somebody, a spokesperson, a face, a company, a brand, right, had to institutionalize this idea that cannabis could be an asset class that cannabis could be an investable industry. Um, and whoever that was, I believe, looking back, would have been um, uh, maybe treated or characterized the way that I was. I think looking back on it, so much you know, that I didn't know going through that experience, so many firsts, you know, I don't know if anybody knew, and so many good decisions and so many you know, bad decisions over you know, 10 years of my life. Um, uh, but you know, uh, one of the things that I didn't do ever was give myself right from the beginning. I was speaking for whether it was MedMen, whether it was for the movement, whether it was for a legalization initiative, whether it was to try to compel people to donate to the policy groups that were changing laws. I was always speaking for cause that entire time. Right. And that's what I believed at the time the industry needed. And as a result of me standing up and speaking for the cause, as the spokesperson for that cause, it didn't really matter who I was personally. 
right? I personally was somebody who believed very much and believed to this day that the legalization and safe access to regulated cannabis makes the world safer, healthier, and happier. Like, I believe that at my core. I believe we're a better society when my mother-in-law has a vape pen in her purse. That hasn't changed. Um, but, you know, as the spokesperson, as the face, um, you know, being out there, you know, South Park, for example, was going to vilify the caricature of whoever the face of the first, you know, cannabis unicorn was. It didn't matter that it was me, someone who went to bed at eight o'clock and someone who has, you know, a wife and two kids that I've been with for 20 years. And at that time I was waking up every day feeling like I was on a mission. How else could they write it except to make me that, that caricature? And I think, you know, looking back on it, right and wrong, right? They're just all decisions. I never made that effort to correct any of it or to at least step up and say, this is who I am as an individual. So, you know, I think that this concept of the corporatization of cannabis is something that I happen to be the first and Medmen was the first to embrace, right? And at that time, you had the advocates and you had the people that wanted to see this, you know, become permanent, become legal, but they would not buy into the system that needed to make it legal. They weren't meeting with the NASDAQ. They weren't meeting with the SEC. They weren't meeting with investment bankers. They weren't even talking to lawyers, right? They were running their marijuana businesses. Yes, they might stand up and say it should be legal, but they were doing nothing about it, right? And one thing that I felt a lot of conviction about was that you know, the system that we need to play inside in order to create permanence for this asset class in this industry so that we could provide access, that system had to exist inside of the greater system that was already there. That's Wall Street. That's Bay Street. Those are the exchanges, the penny exchanges, the big boards, the legislative, that's changing laws, right? That's pissing people off, which we did a lot of. And again, you know, why... You know, the question would be like, why maybe there's the actual history of 10 years of MedMen and then there's the stories of the 10 years of MedMen. Like, we look no further. Who would we have to piss off to try to go legalize marijuana in all the states that we did, right? Taking away market share from beer companies, taking away, you know, drug companies' profits, right? Doing our part to make a dent in the opioid, you know, crisis. Right, going up toe to toe with religious fanatics who somehow believe it's amoral to access wellness. Right? Like pick pick who you want and who was the face standing there as these things were happening. It happened to be this face. And so, you know, that's that came with the territory and that was something that we embraced. And, you know, over ten years, like I said, you know, a lot of decisions every single day and a lot of those decisions were decisions we were making for the first time in history. And so as a result, you know, the, the best thing that I could come up with at the time was that my goal was just to make the decision. My goal was to collect as much information as I possibly could and then make a decision. And then as quickly as possible, receive the information, whatever learnings came from that decision to make the next one. That's all I could do. And that was my job for 10 years of my life. Um, so, we have what we have now. We have a permanent industry. We have a permanent asset class. We have Bank of America covering, you know, cannabis with a TAM, whatever their latest figure, $150 billion total addressable market, right? 10 years, 12 years, 15 years ago, right? None of that happened. Right? We had to put Chris Levy on Fox News 
And the minute that somebody with a MedMen logo went on Fox News in a suit, that was corporate weed. But I, I believe, and I believe still to this day, that's what this movement needed to, to, to press for. I couldn't agree with you more in terms of what the industry needed. And this was a necessary thing. This was marrying, to your point, the existing framework of Wall Street and finance to a world which was largely moved from the dark, from underground into the light. And, you know, what that accomplished was something that I remember seeing in red neon at an office in downtown Toronto that I visited on many occasions, uh, that says mainstreaming marijuana. And there's no doubt in my mind that MedMen, to your point, took the first step and a substantial successful step of mainstreaming marijuana. There's something else that was on that same wall in red neon. And I'll read this to you because I think this is a good way to sort of measure what you really did accomplish to that point. Challenge everything. Settle only for what ought to be, not what is. Be state-of-the-art and best-in-class utilizing institutional systems to find the next generation of marijuana businesses and consumers. Adam, tell me you didn't do that. Tell me MedMen didn't do that in those first 10 years. That's a success story, isn't it? Well, I appreciate that. I mean, you know, I, I, I like to think that, you know, marijuana is more accessible than it was when we showed up and that's more destigmatized than when we showed up and that, that mission statement, which came from my heart, is something we work towards every single day. Um, so I really appreciate you recognizing that and also recognizing the insanity of the fact that as an L.A. person running a business domestically in the United States, we were forced to have a freaking corporate office in Toronto, Canada. <laughs> so we can get into the crazy <laughs> uniqueness um, you know, of this whole setup. But, you know, before that, I really appreciate I appreciate you mentioning that. Thank you. Really. Well, because okay, it, it, it's true. And, and, and like I said, obviously, this is, the story is not, you know, a thousand percent positive. Right. There, there's a there's a little bit of a wake there. But we'll talk a little bit about some of that. But at the end of the day, MedMen, you, your vision, what you sought to do did accomplish that objective, and you were the first, and I have to tell you, probably still the only brand that pushed that as far as you did to go towards mainstreaming cannabis. And let me talk about Sirius Radio for a second, because it's related to this same concept of mainstreaming cannabis, right? Um, I'm a devout, serious serious satellite radio listener. I've been that way for, for many, many, many years. Well, when I started hearing those MedMen commercials, and the commercials changed over time, presumably because there were lawyers and compliance people that got involved with some of the copy there, but that was a remarkable achievement in and of itself. I'm proud to say that I, my law firm, the former Hoban Law Group, was the first television cable commercial that talked about cannabis, but I was selling services. I wasn't selling cannabis. You walked a fine line there and did it quite well with the introduction of that advertising campaign on an international uh, global satellite radio system like Sirius. What, what went into that and what was Sirius's appetite for allowing you to put advertisements on the radio that did talk about cannabis like it was anything else, like it was mainstream? Well, I, I think I'm going to tell you guys a story that I've never told before and never been told publicly, and it's not about Sirius. It's about a Super Bowl commercial. Um, and I'm going to tell the same point, but I think it'll be more fun. Is that okay? Absolutely. Okay. Um, 
So, right, as I said, we were doing things for the first time. We were breaking things. We were pushing boundaries. And one of the things that we did over 10 years is we took two steps forward before there was anywhere to go. And then we would do what was necessary to fill in the dirt underneath us before we fell under, right? I mean, that was our life waking up every single day. And whether it was, you know, the the serious, you know, campaign, whether it were the billboards. I mean, I drive around Los Angeles now and the last time I was in LA, like I had to pull over. I, I, I had an emotional moment. It's plastered with marijuana billboards that I know people are buying on the cheap. They're spending no nothing on the content. It is garbage content. And I remember in 2017 when I said, you know, MedMen wants to go do this big billboard campaign. Nobody would let us lease a billboard from them. We were marijuana. It was not allowed. What we had to do to get our first billboard was crazy how much we had to pay who we had to pay crazy but anyways on the serious one when we talk about what we were going through and at this time we decided that one of the things we would do to push this agenda of mainstreaming marijuana was we would have the first super bowl ad that um pushed this message and it was presented by a plant to, you know medna um and we met with at the time it was uh cbs had the super bowl and we met with the executives that were running, you know, were in charge of deciding who got ad space. They came to the office, um, you know, multiple times. We had conversations with the GC, and they approved it. They were very specific about what we could include. We could not show a marijuana leaf, but they approved it. And so we went out and we produced this commercial where Spike Jones, this Academy Award-winning, amazing director, directed a commercial with Jesse Williams, who at the time was the face and spokesperson for Black Lives Matter. And we we produced this commercial that, you know, for me, right, that was like 10 years earlier or eight years earlier, that would, that would have been the moment, right, where the world gets to see this is now mainstream. What's more mainstream than American football and Super Bowl? And so we spent the money. Um, we invested the energy and we produced this commercial. And to this day, the only place you can see it is YouTube. Um, I'm very proud of this commercial. Um, but, uh, you know, lo and behold, after we had paid for it, after we had, after it was done, the, you know, the lawyers uh, at uh, the powers that be came back and said, sorry, you're, you're not allowed. We said, well, wait a second, this is the finished product. You actually made edits. You had us take scenes out. They said, no, sorry, no dice. So, you know, we've got, you know, maybe the record for one of the most expensive uh, commercials ever put on YouTube. <laughs> but, you know, that that was our experience at the time. And so serious, we were able to get through and able to stick. And there's a great example of success in those efforts. But, you know, for every success, you know, there, there were there were not successes. There were stumbling blocks. There were failures because, again, we were breaking things, doing things for the first time, pissing people off. I don't know who had the conversation with the GC. Maybe it was the Roger, maybe it was the commissioner of the NFL. I don't know. But all I know is that, you know, our investors had to find out. We invested millions of dollars into a commercial. If it had aired, it would have been gangbusters for us. But it didn't happen. Yeah, and given the uh, the cannabis use policies in the NFL, I wouldn't be surprised if it was Goodell that uh, ultimately put the Knicks on this ad. Um, but no, that's a, that's, that's an incredible story. And I think, you know, it's unfortunate that we never got to see that ad anywhere, but YouTube, but I'm certainly gonna have to go check it out to at least give, uh, 
give the production dollars you know a bit of value. Um, so. <laughs> of course. Well, you know, I, I want to pivot briefly to another area of, of innovation. You know, that I think that is synonymous with with MedMen, and um, I think the story is well told with your New York store opening um, on Fifth Ave and the fact that. The MedMen retail experience um, early on and, and, you know, from, I don't know, the earliest days possible was touted as the pinnacle of the cannabis retail experience. Um, I was in Denver, Colorado and have been for the last 10 years. And, you know, my retail experience here was typically walking into a dimly lit kind of grungier store. You know, maybe there's a few bud tenders that are between the ages of 18 and 25. Um, and the experience was never you know, a welcoming or engaging one, right? I had to know, fortunately, I'm a connoisseur of cannabis, at least self-proclaimed. And so I knew what I was going for when I went into the shop. Um, but I, you know, regularly understood there were stories of people going into into a retail experience and having just an overwhelming time and leaving with either not the products they actually desired or a slew of products they have no idea what they do. Um, and so going back to the original kind of retail concept at MedMen, you know, the, the Apple store, let's say, of cannabis retail, um, what led you guys to to really hone in on on the retail experience as a place of innovation where, you know, I think most competitors at the time were focused more on product and brands and developing um, as opposed to that exact experience. And, and, and genetics and just genetics. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that is a very well-informed, very multifaceted question. All right, let's do it. So the first thing I think would be, um, you know, that, that decision-making process that I alluded to earlier, right? Looking at the set of facts, knowing there's no right answer, knowing there's no history, just having to make a decision based on intuition and incomplete information. And so as I go through that process, as these laws are evolving, these regulations are evolving state by state, one of the things very early on that I bet very big on was that states wouldn't step out of line, right? So what we have in the history of legalization, you know, and access to marijuana is we have the West Coast states that had these gray markets initially because they were unregulated. So they went from, well, it's not really legal, but you're in business to having to figure out to say, well, there's licenses now, but these guys have been there for a while. Right. And so you have Colorado, Washington, Oregon. They all had that conundrum. What do you deal with the thousands of people that are already working in this gray market industry? But then you had Massachusetts and, you know, Massachusetts was the first state to step up and say, wait a second, we're going to create what I call merit based oligopoly. Right. And we're going to treat this like, you know, gaming, for example. Right. So you're going to go through this arduous application. We're only going to issue at the time, I think it was 18 or 20 licenses for the whole state. And when Massachusetts did that, I decided I would be all in. I would be all in that there would not be a subsequent state that wouldn't copy that model. Because how could a state step out of line once that had happened? Right? It was illegal yesterday. So how in your right mind could you take anybody working in it and give them a license? So what we're going to do is we're going to give people licenses that can fill out 1,000-page applications and have the means to go run one of these very, very, you know, uh, restricted overall, you know, licenses. So when you look at the way these regulations were coming down, the choke point for the industry, period, is retail, was and is, still is, because the way these regulations come down state by state in these oligopolistic kind of structures is that 
the cultivation side of it might only be a license granted to 10 people, 20 people, 50 people. But more and more what you see as these programs evolve and mature is ultimately there are no restrictions on the size of the growth, right? Ultimately down the road. And so if, you know, cultivation can continue to grow and create more of a commoditized type, you know, product in cannabis, where is the value in the oligopoly? Well, the value is the fact that there are only not only a certain number of retail licenses, but you mentioned Fifth Avenue. The zoning around marijuana retail still is the most arduous zoning out of any zoning I know of in the country. So when we opened MedMen on Fifth Avenue, we created a buffer. There will not be any competitors in that store. I don't know who runs MedMen now, but if they don't, you know, capitalize on that store, God, I hope the next person, whoever does, right? That store should be one of the top high performing stores in the world because there's no competition because what government official is going to stand on a podium and say, I know we have this many stores and I know that we had zoning buffers from schools, church, parks, et cetera, but we need more of them. So we're going to relax it a little bit, a little closer to your kid's school. I think it's okay. When is that going to happen? It's not, not, not anytime soon. So the choke point for me at that point in time, and even today is, was, and is retail. And I want to be in the choke point, right? Because that's where the leverage is as things commoditize, as you get, you know, more normal situation, you control it all. There's one store on Fifth Avenue across from Bryant Park, super prime. I, I just don't care how much marijuana is being grown in the state. That's a $50 million a year store. So we were really focused on retail. And if we were focused on retail, you know, what we looked at was where are we realistically from an environment standpoint at the consumer level? And you mentioned something I really appreciate. You at that time were walking into stores with, with blacked out glass, with, you know, chains and with bars and with security guards at the front and with, you know, young kids working in the back, you know, um, and, and a lot of them were scantily clad, right? That's what that was. Maybe there was Bob Marley. Play. That's what it was. And if we were going to go ahead and mainstream it, we had to invite mainstream America, the consumer, into our stores. And you don't do that in back alleys, and you don't do that with blacked out windows. That is shame. And so I'm the antithesis of shame. So how are you proud? You're proud by saying, here's a glass storefront on Fifth Avenue. It says MedMen, and I'm going to let you see there's marijuana inside. Um, and so, you know, us innovating the retail experience was something we did out of just necessity. We believed that to create a market for ourselves, now that we had these moats around these prime locations that nobody was going to touch, we had to now create the demand. Right. And you do that by introducing people to the fact that they don't need to be ashamed to come access wellness with us. That's that's really well said. And, and ultimately, it's the retail side of things that seemingly 99 percent of the companies out there have failed to focus on because they can't figure out how to create a meaningful relationship with consumers and keep consistent sales up. Of course, there's other market forces out there, but the retail sales component, while seemingly obvious for the many of the reasons you just mentioned, has been oftentimes overlooked. Uh, and for the life of me, I can't explain it, but I want, I want to talk for a moment briefly about selection of business models. And what I mean by that is you look at some of the names out there today, you look at the cookies brand and I say cookies brand and I select the word brand specifically because cookies largely does not own 
its stores. Uh, almost exclusively. It's a licensing situation. It's a situation where cookies created a brand and it created certain branding standards and certain product lines, but it contract manufacturers or enters into arrangements with licensees in multiple jurisdictions, not just across the states, as you know, around the world. Uh, Tell me about any contemplation you had about a business model that surrounded licensing versus getting full licensure yourself creating your own mini supply chain state by state by state, because that, in my opinion, is not not just in my opinion, I think based on fact, when you create a supply chain in a state, in a brand new industry, it's get a license, create cultivation, create uh, an extraction or or manufacturing facility, create retail. You have to do all of those things and hope that the debt that you incur in building up those things matches the consumer uh, behavior on the other side from sales. So licensing seems like an easier way to get there. Did you contemplate that? Did you do a lot of that? Uh, What do you think of, of that model in this context? Oh God, I wish, <laughs> I, I wish it was available, but, but, but here's my, I wish it's not even available today. So you mentioned someone like cookies or anybody else that's trying that model. It doesn't work. And why doesn't it work? Because we don't have standards yet. So cookies can go slap their name on stores and charge a fee, but each of those stores is being run slightly differently now. And the operators, most of them suck. Right. And so if you actually get into these retail stores and you get into the four wall economics, they're horrible. Right. So what are you really doing if you're slapping your name on something when you don't have a mature enough industry where you have best practices and you have leadership and things where you could say, hey, I want to do a licensing deal with these people on cultivation and these people on manufacturing and these people on hardware. God, I wish that was the case today. It certainly wasn't the case 10 years ago. The last thing I ever wanted to do was grow weed. Man, I, you know, I, I can name the things, the decisions I made at MedMen that I look back and go, man, I wish I didn't make that one. Or I understand why I made it, but God, that sucked. Growing weed was the worst one, right? But at the end of the day, we were forced to. When we got our New York license, you know, New York said, if you don't have plants in the ground, supply yourself, right? Within a certain amount of time, the money you just spent on this is gone. And so... You know, I think this concept of vertical integration, which was forced on these companies early by these regulators, I do think it's viable um, today. But I think it's viable if you're offloading operational pieces of your business to third parties, not necessarily business line, right? So if somebody's, a, you know, a dynamic business that has cultivation, manufacturing, and retail, right? If, if you know, I was in that situation today and let's just say with MedMen 18 and we crushed retail. We were the best in the world at retail. And I know we sucked at cultivation, man. We had so many grows going up all over the country and it was just way too much all at once. Right. Um, I wish, right. Looking back. And I think there is today, I would say, look, I'm vertically integrated in New York, but I want to partner with so-and-so cultivator, right. To come out there and do a JV with me. That's what I would be doing today. Um, because I can't do anything about getting out of the vertical integration. Um, that's just how the reg, you know, that, that's how the regulations have come down. Unfortunately, I do think there's an opportunity, however, in the fact that vertical integration has been forced, but there's been no innovation. That's the industry as a whole. I, I appreciate, I'm flattered by the commentary on MedMen, but tell me about an innovation on top of where MedMen was in 2017. Nobody's innovating. 
right? Like everybody is, is, is sitting on their hands. And at the end of the day, like we need to do better than that. We're in a new environment today, right? We're not in an environment anymore where Adam at MedMen can't find a partner in New York to do the cultivation. So out of the top five pub codes with the biggest market cap, why are each of them doing all of their verticals? Because you, because nobody's called them out yet, right? Nobody has called out the CEO of Pubco X during an earnings call and said, can you please break out your verticals as a standalone business line and show me the profitability? No analyst has asked that question. <laughs> right. The minute they ask it, the house of cards crumble. <laughs> right, right. So I do think, I, I do think we'll morph into you know, breaking and more fragmented and more focused. But I don't think that means there won't be larger organizations that hold a lot of these licenses um, and figure out different ways to monetize. Certainly. And if we, you know, if we do move towards a national model, you know, who knows what form that'll take as consolidation happens. I mean, we're going to end up with these multi-million dollar, you know, controlled environment agriculture facilities in the Northeast and across the North that, you know, ultimately are not fit locations to grow cannabis. And there's going to be these massive facilities and these, these capital dumps essentially um, where I believe, you know, that cannabis will be grown where cannabis grows naturally, you know, in the Southwest. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's interesting. And you're speaking my language because I've worked in, in basically every role in the industry except for in cultivation because I have a black thumb and I tend to uh, kill the plants instead of letting them live. So <laughs> it's never good to see me in the cultivation facility. No, but 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 you know, look at, at at the end of the day, if you if you were to look at the evolving regulatory framework where they do separate out and don't require that vertical integration, it makes more sense because it's more business friendly. But you know, th- there's there's so much to cover, and we only have a, a short amount of time on this podcast. You and I will will do a little bit of a deeper dive and 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 look for a long form written piece. But um, what are some of the 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 things that you are the most proud of? What are your, your biggest regret or regrets? And what would you be doing today if MedMen was still under your control and you had an opportunity to take advantage of the fact that the market is depressed, but with the right connection with consumers and retail experience, I think somebody can break through this, but I'm not seeing a whole lot of efforts to do so. Yeah, I'm really proud of the work that we did to normalize and destigmatize cannabis. Um, and that's, when I say us, it's really us. You know, I have my one role out of a thousand people, but that's very real. <laughs> I, I, nobody wants to hear what I have to say if the other thousand people aren't doing what they're doing too. Um, I'm really proud of that. I'm proud that when we showed up, you know, and God bless their souls, you know, it was the D'Angelo's that were on television, um, on Fox News. Um, I remember watching the interview um, uh, and, uh, who was the guy, Bill, uh, Bill O'Reilly, right. And Bill O'Reilly's blasting them on the, you know, medical marijuana farce. And, you know, Andrew, who I think is one of, you know, the best operators in marijuana and someone who everybody should, you know, thank for what he's done for the industry. Right. Andrew responds and says, I have glaucoma. How dare you? Right. And that's where it was when we showed up. Um, and I'm proud of the fact that it went from that to a conversation about a wellness category, again, that B of A is, you know, assessing a TAM that's almost, whatever, $200 billion. Um, I'm proud that we created the first unicorn in, in U.S. cannabis. It's not something I ever thought about in my life, but, like, that's historical. 
And I think that we're in an historical, you know, time frame when it comes to this prohibition. And so whether it's you guys and your podcast and it's your legal work or whether it's the fact that we have the first unicorn, all of this is history, right? And it's all important for what's next. Um, you know, I'm really proud of, of, of what we did after we became the first unicorn, right? We, we pressed it and we brought marijuana to the world. Um, you know, I remember being in conference rooms in, in, in London during our road show, you know, with BlackRock and whoever else. And it was the first time they were meeting with marijuana and they were writing checks. And those are the people that wrote checks to everybody else after they, you know, went through the door that we knocked out. So I think I'm really, I'm proud of all of that. I think uh, your question, your second question was like, uh, what did I learn or something to that extent? And the third one was, well, what would I what still did, be doing? What did you learn? Yeah, well, well to, to really two questions. Uh, yeah. What did you learn slash what do you regret? I think sometimes those things go hand in hand. And then thirdly, what would you be doing today if you were still at the helm uh, given this particular economic situation for the cannabis industry? Well, what I learned is that experience is king. Um, that's what I learned. And, you know, I learned that the hard way, right? The, the, the big, I think one of the big things that's never talked about, I don't hear it talked about at all, right? We can talk about analogies between cannabis and tech. And we can talk about whatever, you know, whatever else we want. And we can say cannabis. We can even talk about cannabis and alcohol. But cannabis is still federally illegal. So, you know, yes, we were breaking things and I was making decisions with, with incomplete information, but that's suboptimal, right? Optimally, you would be making decisions with experience around you so that you had at least some complete information or some historical, you know, uh, uh, examples to look at to, to inform your call. So I, I learned that experience is king. Now, what does that mean today? The playbook exists. Right. Like this industry as an asset class, maybe it's 10 years old, a little bit longer. Right. When I was MedMen, there was no playbook. Right. When, when Bill Barr decided to destroy the Pharmacan deal, which was probably one of the three things that led to my end of my tenure, when Bill Barr actually went into the, his associate's office and said, you kill that merger. Right. And in doing that, you know, also, you know, uh, 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 killing my, you know, my future as, as the CEO, I didn't know anything about HSR. I didn't know anything about antitrust. We bought Pharmacan because they finished the footprint. It's HSR, I'm, I'm a federally illegal business, right? But I didn't have the experience around me on the board in the office to say, hey, when we buy Pharmacan, we're going to trigger this antitrust stuff. And it's the first time you're going to go through it. I've been through it before, Adam. I did it when I was at T-Mobile and we bought Sprint right? Or whatever the story might have been. And here are the things. Just to find a law firm in D.C. to work with us to represent us on that case was almost impossible. So his ability to kill that deal, right? A half a billion dollar deal, right? As the capital markets froze and, you know, like experience, maybe, you know, maybe we would have done something differently. So experience is king. What would I do now if I was at the helm of a public company? Um, uh, uh, I would innovate. I would innovate. I think that I would focus on my experience and how that translates to today. I think that ultimately I didn't have a me, right? There wasn't anybody around that you could call or talk to that would say, this is what happens next. These are the things you should be looking for, 
Um, and so, you know, what I would be doing if I was at MedMen today is I would surround myself with the best people available and I would be that person. Um, and so giving them that comfort of, hey, you don't have to worry about this. There's a playbook. We already know how to run retail profitably. Stop worrying about that. Worry about how to innovate. How are we going to go partner with mainstream, in, you know, global business to put more pressure on regulators? I see these people leaving states. Are people actually fleeing California? Like actual businesses are leaving California. What's California? $11 billion? And, and the most important from a brand building perspective, state in the world? And people are leaving California. Why? Because they can't make money? Well, when was the last time they innovated their experience? How about innovated their operations to run a more efficient store or business? No, we're just going to leave. So if, if I was anywhere, I would love that. If you're leaving the most important market in the world, awesome stuff. Thank you so much. Um, you know, innovate, right? When was the last big partnership that was announced? When was the last time you turned on TV and you saw somebody, you know, articulately expressing the fact that more people in the U.S. believe medical marijuana should be legal than believe that the earth is round. Why am I not hearing that stuff, right? Because because the most Americans want to see marijuana legal, at least not Schedule One narcotics. So where's the pressure? Where's the pressure so these businesses have the next two steps to take? Nobody's filling in that dirt underneath. Nobody's innovating. Everybody's sitting and holding their breath and waiting for banking reform so the bigger companies can exercise their options on them. What kind of game is that for such an exciting, fast-growing industry? Every day, more people wake up smoking weed. Every day, more people in the world wake up having access to legal weed. And people are retreating? This is not retreat. This is look at the playbook. Learn from all of the experiences and decisions made before you and then move, move, move it forward. How can we make it better? No, that's like, honestly, that message I think is, is what we have to end this episode on because I can't think of a better way to wrap this, Adam. Um, you know, it, it's true. The industry is in a place of stagnation and sure there's lack of capital right now and people are concerned and scared. Um, and of course there's always regulatory oversight, but you're absolutely correct. There's a lot of, um, like I said, or like you said, stagnation, and there's just lack of innovation right now um, in all facets of the industry. Um, so there's certainly a lot of room to grow. And, you know, there's no doubt in my mind, and, you know, I, I had a thought before, but I think after talking to you now, I'm convinced that you and MedMen truly did pave the road um, for the growth of this industry and for some of these other companies to come along and follow in your footsteps. Um, and, and, you know, the doors you broke down and the relationships you forged or broke, um, led to all that success. And so I think, you know, the industry as a whole has a lot to thank you and MedMen for generally. Um, and, you know, I just want to say thanks to you too for, for coming on the show and uh, the great conversation today. Before we sign off here, Adam, any final thoughts? No, I appreciate you guys. I appreciate you doing what you're doing. Thank you so much for having me on. And, uh, you know, I, I hope I can, I can do it again. I hope you invite me back. No, certainly. I uh, I would love to continue the conversation. So, yes, Adam, thank you very much, and uh, we appreciate you, and uh, we uh, look forward to continuing the discussion. Thanks for joining us for another enlightening conversation. If you liked what you heard, hit that subscribe button to get all future episodes fresh out of the studio. Suggestions for topics or guests for the show, please send them to hello at bobhoban.com. And as always, thanks to Benzinga for powering the Hoban Minute.